Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. April 1st it is. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. After 40 days and 40 nights of debate, Georgia's legislative session came to a close last night. Mr. President, I move that the Senate stand adjourned sine die. We'll talk about what measures made it through the General Assembly and are headed to the desk of Governor Brian Kemp. And could there be some controversy with some that might get a veto? Plus, the backlash continues regarding Georgia's new voting law. More corporate leaders are speaking out and more calls for an economic boycott of the state because of the new law. There's a lot to get to. So when we speak to WABE politics reporters Emma Hurt and Emil Moffitt, they'll have a lot to say. But first, Governor Brian Kemp announced plans to roll back the state's COVID-19 restrictions yesterday. Now, this comes despite pleas from federal health officials not to loosen restrictions. Now, pay attention to all of this because it can be confusing. Now, Governor Kemp signed three executive orders. The first one extends the public health state of emergency through April 30th of this year. The second extends the current COVID-19 guidance in Georgia until April 7th with an added provision allowing state agency employees to get a COVID vaccine without using sick leave or annual leave. The third order becomes effective on April 8th and will roll back many of the current COVID-19 restrictions in place. Got it? And this means Georgia will no longer ban gatherings of more than 50 people. Bars and restaurants will also, they won't be required to make patrons physically distance and also ends the ability of law enforcement officers to close businesses that violate state public health rules. Got it? Okay. Now, all of this is in direct opposition of what CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky has been talking about recently. The trajectory of the pandemic in the United States looks similar to many other countries in Europe, including Germany. Italy and France looked like just a few weeks ago. And since that time, those countries have experienced a consistent and worrying spike in cases. We are not powerless. We can change this trajectory of the pandemic, but it will take all of us recommitting to following the public health prevention strategies consistently while we work to get the American public vaccinated. I'm calling on our elected officials our faith-based communities, our civic leaders, and our other influencers in communities across the nation. And I'm calling on every single one of you to sound the alarm, to carry these messages into your community and your spheres of influence. Got it. Meanwhile, COVID-19 cases are rising here in the U.S., particularly in the Northeast and Midwest. And it's what some are calling a, quote, fourth wave of the pandemic. Now, the U.S. reported 65,000 new cases alone just in the past seven days. That's according to the CDC. Here in Georgia, more than 1,100 new cases were reported just yesterday. And this brings Georgia's total number of confirmed cases since last March, last year, to 852,395 confirmed coronavirus cases. 16,607 Georgians have died due to the virus. And the total number of hospitalizations going back to last year stands at 58,810. And now, as I mentioned early, earlier, Sanadai has come and gone from, from a repeal of the state citizens' arrest law to the fallout from Georgia's new voting legislation. We've got a lot to cover with our WABE politics reporters, Emil Moffitt and Emma Hurt. Not sure how they are still on their feet, but we appreciate them taking the time. Emma and Emil. Thank you so much. Emil, I'm going to begin with you because I know there's a lot to get to. Let's just, through your lens, give a snapshot of what happened last night. Was it little chaos, some chaos, expected chaos? 
Nah, not that much. It was a uh, it was a moderate amount of chaos. Um, I think as we talked about uh, on Monday on the program, there was kind of this anticlimactic feel to it after last Thursday's uh, passage of the uh, omnibus voting bill. Um, everything else beyond that was uh, it felt kind of like a little bit of a an energy letdown. But there was still some important work to do. They still had to pass uh, the budget, which mm-hmm. they did last night with about 40 minutes to spare before midnight. <laughs> uh, they just got it in under the wire. <laughs> but um, but so so it was kind of a, an anticlimactic feel to it. Uh, but there was still this kind of feeling of tension in the air over the events of last Thursday. And we'll get to that in a moment. I want to give uh, Emma Hurd an opportunity from through her lens. Emma, how would you describe last night? Yeah, I think moderate amount of chaos is is accurate um, and sort of waxing and waning uh, levels of severity. There were some moments where we were all just sort of a little bit uh, bleary-eyed and and there wasn't much grabbing attention. There was a lot of kind of meat and potatoes bills just going through as there is on Sine Die. And then we had suddenly fuel tax credit drama. And then um, so, so it was waxing and waning. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, I do want to get to this, and Emma, I'll stay with you, because just this morning there are reports that Major League Baseball is considering, now these are reports, is considering moving its July All-Star game out of, well, it's not really Atlanta, but Cobb County, because of all this, the controversy with the law. Here's President Joe Biden on ESPN. I think today's professional athletes are acting incredibly responsibly. I would strongly support them doing that. People look to them. They're leaders. So, Emma, I'll start with you. What are you all hearing? What's the word on the curb among state lawmakers about this fallout and its economic impact? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a split. I think they're frustrated. And speaking of the Republicans who wrote the bill, they're frustrated but not surprised by the criticism by people like President Biden and and Democratic candidate, former Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams. But the, the protests are, are sort of, um, you know, blowback from businesses, especially from Delta and Coca-Cola. The homegrown Georgia companies has really hit them by surprise because they feel like, guys, we, we talked to you about this bill. You were involved in nearly daily conversations is what I've heard. And so the blowback from that community is, is really caught lawmakers by surprise. I think they were kind of braced and ready for the, the criticism from Democrats, although they, you know, Republicans believe that it's not fat, like that Democrats haven't read the bill properly, that mm-hmm. it's not as egregious as some reports and some comments have said. But it, there's a split, and, and that business angle that I'm sure we'll talk about more is really seems to have offended them. Mm. Emil, what do you want to add to that? What are you hearing from state lawmakers? Well, there have been a couple of, of folks associated with, with Cobb County, uh, State Representative Terry Anulowitz, who's kind of questioned, does this hurt, does this do more harm to Cobb County businesses than it would help um, if the All-Star Game were to be taken out of, out of Cobb County? Um, Lisa Cupid, who's the commissioner, mm-hmm. uh, newly elected commission chair in Cobb County, has said the same thing, that this might uh, hurt businesses that, that are looking forward to that spike um, in the month of July or around the All-Star Game, the All-Star Game and associated activities. So it's kind of that balancing act, uh, allowing this, this kind of national stage of protest from Major League Baseball players uh, versus um, the local impact to the community. So I think people are kind of seeing it on, on both sides. And in fact, Democratic leader Stacey Abrams, in an opinion piece published by USA Today, and I'm going to quote her here, she says, Leaving us behind with boycotts won't save us. I ask you to bring your business to Georgia. And if you're already here, stay and fight, stay and vote. So, Emil, could there be a split uh, among the Democratic leaders and and those voting rights advocates? Because if they're saying let's boycott some of these corporations and then we're telling Major League Baseball don't come here. But, you know, Stacey Abrams, who is a very high profile and respected Democratic leader, saying, no, don't do it that way. Let's just fight. Could this be cause some tension? Yeah, and I think you could see, yeah, I think you could see uh, people taking their cues from from uh, Stacey Abrams on this because of her prominence as a, as a leader 
uh, in the progressive community, um, not only in Atlanta and in Georgia and the, in the U.S. really, um, but also I, I think there's an evolution of thinking. Uh, that used to be the immediate response to something like we saw in North Carolina a few years ago mm -hmm. was boycott, boycott, boycott. And now there's been sort of, sort of a, an evolution of thinking on that saying, don't boycott. We need your businesses. People rely on the business community to grow. What you, we want you to do is to come here to spend money here, but also bring your values, bring your perspectives and try to, uh, you know, populate Georgia and, and bring money to Georgia uh, in, a, in a way that that uh, Democrats think is going to be more inclusive if there are more people here who believe and think as they do. And we, I remember some years ago when Venus and Serena Williams pulled out of, I think it was the Indian Wells uh, tournament uh, due to some legislation. So we know that athletes can have a an influence, a significant in, influence on issues like this. So we shall wait and see what happens. Now, Emma, you had a one-on-one -on -one interview with the governor this week, and he continued to defend the legislation. Let's take a listen. You know, I'm telling you the truth about this bill. It expands access. Uh, it's adding the, the voter ID requirement on absentee ballots by mail, which is going to make the process more efficient. It's not going to be hard for people to continue to use that process if that's what they want to do. And Emma, you push back uh, on Governor Kemp at some of the comments that he made. Uh, what was your takeaway from that interview with him? He's just holding steadfast to this notion that the bill is rather expansive and not restrictive. Right. You know, it's been interesting because as the bill is being written, the governor was not speaking publicly about different versions and and it wasn't, you know, clear how involved he was in the writing of the bill. But now he's come out and made himself really the spokesperson of it, defending it up and down. And it's a really complicated bill. There are a lot of provisions and some restrict access to voting and some expand it. And so, you know, Kemp is trying to affect the national narrative and you've seen him gone go on to you know national media outlets that he hasn't ever been on before he was on cnbc yesterday mm -hmm. trying to make the case trying to correct the record in his mind about the bill and and his his support doesn't seem to be wavering even amid you know that that interview was before these strong um comments from delta and coca-cola but even amid that pressure he's he's doubling down in his defense for sure Let's stick with Delta Airlines for a moment because last night, and forgive me for laughing because it is funny to me, um, there was a last uh, <laughs> minute amendment last night. Georgia Republicans tried to eliminate a fuel tax credit that benefits airlines. Hmm. The move came the same day that Delta CEO Ed Bastian released a statement calling Georgia's new voting law unacceptable and based on a lie. Now, here's a little bit of House Speaker David Austin. You know, they like our public policy when we're uh, doing things that benefit them. And uh, so, you know, they reap the reward of that benefit and then turn around and do this. That's called stick and move. Um, what do you make of that, Emma? Yeah, that was a that was an that was quite a moment late last night in the final hour. Um, you know, there was a last minute amendment to a bill and the bill sponsor was was listing, you know, this is what it's about. This is why you should vote for it. Here's a couple changes. And at the end, oh, and then we're going to stop collect. We're going to start collecting jet fuel tax July 1st. Thank you so much. I yield the wealth. <laughs> and everyone was like, what? Um, and and then they had, you know, seconds to vote on it. And Democrats called it out immediately. But but yes, you, start, you, you played Speaker Ralston's tape. He was not shy about saying that's what we were trying to do. The Senate did not take up that measure, so it didn't pass into law. But it was kind of a warning shot from some Republicans to Delta and Speaker Ralston said, you know, um, they should know better and I'm, you're not going to feed the dog that bites you. And so there's there's definitely a bit of a crack in the relationship that, as we know, has been really close between companies like mm -hmm. Delta and state lawmakers. Wow. Let's move on now to some other measures that passed last night that maybe a lot of folks don't even know about it now. Georgia lawmakers passed a bill that would block, quote, and de defund the police efforts in the state's counties and cities, of course, this now has the Governor Kemp's desk for a final signature, which it could be likely. What do we know more about this legislation? I believe it was a state lawmaker from Athens that introduced this, Emil. Yeah, uh, Houston Gaines was uh, was behind it, uh, and he frequently cites other cities around the country, none in Georgia, but other cities around the country who have successfully 
uh, passed measures that would take money away from police departments and reallocate it to, to mental health and community health uh, departments that could better address that. And the, the argument from Houston Gaines, the sponsor and the supporters of this bill is that everybody in Georgia, regardless of where they live, uh, expects or should expect a, a certain level of security um, and protection from police forces. Opponents say this is a local control issue that local governments should be allowed to decide how they allocate their budget. And if they feel that better money can be better spent uh, on community health and hiring mental health counselors instead of more police officers, then they should be able to do that. But as it stands right now, if Governor Kemp signs the bill into law, uh, cities, municipalities will not be able to cut more than 5% from their police budget in a given year. Might there be a legal challenge to this as well, you think, Emil? You could, you could definitely see that from a, from a county or a city perspective um, with regards to local control, just that, that uh, certain uh, uh, topic or principle of local control. So you could definitely see that. Um, uh, a concern of, of, you know, that's often been a Republican talking point is they like local control. But mm -hmm. in this case, um, uh, they're, they're kind of going against that. And also yesterday, the House uh, gave final approval to a measure that would repeal Georgia's citizens arrest law. I believe this is the only type of measure in the nation. The governor has voiced his support for this. And I, we imagine it's going to continue with his signature, correct? Yes, he oh, has yeah. Uh, yeah. given. Yeah, he's given his support for it, and it's it's had bipartisan support the whole way, uh, even dating back to a little bit during last session, and then definitely during this session uh, with uh, with citizens arrest. It does have uh, a couple of carve outs for uh, business owners, for instance, who witness someone uh, a theft or something like that. They can detain somebody, but a key provision also in this new repeal and replace law is that you cannot use it uh, to use deadly force in trying to prevent somebody from taking property or stealing property or damaging property, only when you yourself are threatened with deadly force can you use that. And what about this measure that would allow folks, and I think primarily young folks, to be taught how to act accordingly with the police when you're stopped? Or, or Can someone, one of you all explain this to our listeners? Yes, that was a that was a bill that passed in the House yesterday, but did not pass in the Senate. Okay. Um, Republicans seem to say that it was this is just training young drivers of what to do when you're stopped by uh, a police officer. But Democrats argued that experience is 180 degrees different sometimes with drivers of color mm -hmm. and that to try to just say, OK, here's what you're supposed to do to not get uh, in trouble with a police officer or to worse with a police officer is this is how you're supposed to behave. Democrats are saying it, it's a two-way street. That interaction is a two-way street. And there have been just a history of violence against brown and, and black people and drivers and young drivers. And you can't just have a blanket policy of, mm -hmm. okay, this is how you're supposed to act to avoid being targeted by, by law enforcement. And Emma, you were covering a measure that the General Assembly passed last night. It's a criminal justice reform measure related to folks living with HIV. Could you tell us more? Yeah, so it actually didn't get final, final approval because there was a last-minute addition that the Senate did not approve of that was unrelated to the bill. So the bill itself would really modernize the state's criminal code related to those living with HIV right now. You can go to prison or jail for up to 10 years. Um, if you are someone with HIV who gives blood, shares a needle, or has sex with someone without disclosing that you have HIV, and, and that just really isn't in line with modern science. And so this was a measure that activists have been pushing for for a long time. It, it started last year, or there was a bill last year that stalled. This year it had overwhelming bipartisan approval, but there was this one last-minute bit of language related to THC is my understanding. I haven't quite figured out what it was, what was going mm -hmm. on that stalled it, but it's still alive for next year, and, and activists are hopeful that because they've done the work to get all this bipartisan support that it'll be an easy lift. Wow. And Emil, as we begin to wrap up, you were following a measure proposed by Representative Ed Setzler that would give next of kin or a legal representative access to someone in a nursing home or hospital during a public health emergency, but there were some op opponents to this measure. What happened with it last night? 
Yeah, it ended up passing again in the House, um, but it did not pass. It was tabled in the Senate. Um, and uh, House Speaker Ralston, in his uh, post-session media conference, expressed his disappointment because he had spoken out very prominently on this issue a few weeks back when there was the initial House debate. Um, supporters of the bill say that that's the least we can do is allow visitation for people who are in you know, life-threatening situations who need to help making decisions um, and need just compassion from a family member or next of kin. Opponents say this opens the door for more infection in a public health emergency to come in to expose other residents um, and staff members as well. And it's just too dangerous. Um, so we'll have to see what happens next year with it. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, the, the pandemic uh, goes on um, with some of the, the restrictions on nursing homes and hospitals relaxed a little bit as, as we get more people vaccinated. So I definitely want to keep our eye on uh, as, as we go into the, the session in January. Emil, any surprises through your viewpoint of a measure that did not pass? Uh, sports betting was one that we uh, thought that had a chance going into this session. Uh, it was originally thought that would not need a constitutional amendment, and then it was decided by lawmakers after they got kind of conflicting legal opinions mm -hmm. that, you know, to make this cleaner, to make it happen, um, that we needed to go for a constitutional amendment. It passed in the Senate. It never got a vote in the House, on the floor of the House. David Ralston, speaking last night, said, uh, he, he used a sports metaphor. He said the clock ran out on it. And he said there was just concerns on both sides from lawmakers on both sides, conservatives who are just sometimes opposed to expanding gambling at all. And some progressive lawmakers who say, we're not sure if this is going to the profits from sports betting would equally benefit um, uh, business owners of color or college scholarship reci mm -hmm. uh, recipients either. Uh, and so there were some concerns on that end. So, uh, again, that's something that, that definitely Speaker Ralston said we'll, we'll watch for in January. Emma, finally with you, what surprised you that didn't make it out? Yeah, the, the gun rights bill, you know, it needed one more stamp of approval mm -hmm. and it would have um, established reciprocity for gun license holders in other states to come into Georgia and carry legally. And that did not get a vote. And Speaker Ralston said pretty clearly, you know, we just have had these mass shootings in our country recently and it's basically not a, we want to be really sensitive about that and it wasn't a good time so that that to me was was surprising as well and a man and tragically a mass shooting last night out in california our politics reporters from wab our wab newsroom emil moffat emma hurt you all have been doing a fantastic job this legislative session along with our other colleagues there thank you both for taking the time throughout all of this we really appreciate it I don't have any authority around here, but you all are granted a week's vacation. Oh, thanks, Rose. <laughs> Everyone join us 5 p.m. live Gold Dome Scramble. More, more shiny die updates. Absolutely. That's yeah. the day at 5 p.m. All right. Take care, you two. Bye. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Now, we know that the Biden administration, the goal is to get as many Americans vaccinated by that July 4th holiday when we're all supposed to be able to enjoy our families and somehow return to some sense of normalcy. But there is a specific demographic that should be included and that those who are experiencing unstable housing or what we call unsheltered, how are we going to get them vaccinated? Now, here in our area, a local nonprofit that provides health care services to Metro Atlanta's unsheltered population has been working to get COVID-19 related health needs to these folks. It's called Mercy Care. 
And perhaps you might have seen some of their mobile medical clinics parked in your neighborhood around town. Well, joining me now to talk more about all of this and the response during this ongoing public health crisis is Tom Andrews, CEO of St. Joseph's Health System. St. Joseph's Health System consists of Mercy Care, Mercy Care Foundation and Mercy Care Room. I got a lot going on, Tom. Welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Good to meet you. Good to meet you, Rose. Thanks for having me on. Let me get your thoughts on this, because you think that in all well-intended, the purpose is to get as many folks vaccinated. We know that. Um, do you feel that our unsheltered population or those who are experiencing uh, homelessness have been forgotten in all of this? Maybe well, not intentional, I, you, you know. Yeah, no, not intentional. But I think that uh, really throughout the United States, the states have adopted prioritization criteria to try and get the most vulnerable first. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to follow when we started getting the vaccine back in early January, we had to follow those criteria strictly. And so unfortunately, the only people that we could vaccinate that were experiencing homelessness were people over 65. And that was for about a month, month and a half until they started to open up the vaccine to more and more people. Now, in the last two weeks, we can vaccinate anybody over 16, which has really unleashed our efforts to be able to get the vaccine out to more people. Let me ask you this, Tom, because when we talk about the most vulnerable, what's your response to someone who says, well, in the beginning, the most vulnerable are folks who have, who have been who are homeless or who have unstable you know, housing and who have been living on the street? Should Maybe there have been a priority or some resources made to folks like you all to help get at least get testing and then maybe make it a priority for them to be part of that first wave of folks to get vaccinated. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, actually that did happen, Rose. Um, Early on, back in uh, March of 2020, Mm -hmm. we were approached by Fulton County and they basically viewed people living in shelters and the homeless as vulnerable as people living in nursing homes. And you know how the people living in nursing homes were, mm-hmm. were, were prioritized. So in early April, we were given funded funding by Fulton County to start a testing effort. And, and we tested in over 24 different locations. And those were shelters or with homeless service providers who provide services to the unsheltered population. So we did close to 8,000 tests from mm-hmm. April of last year through this last month mainly focused on the homeless population. And so we really did have a really a big support from the county. Mm-hmm. The city of Atlanta mayor stood up an actual subcommittee focused on how to respond to the uh, persons experiencing homelessness. You know, they opened up the isolation hotel for people mm-hmm. who tested positive that were homeless and also a non-congregate hotel for older people, people with chronic uh, illnesses that are experiencing homelessness to get them off the streets and get them into a protected environment. So I think there was a, a phenomenal effort here in Atlanta to respond to this vulnerable population. Now, Mercy Care is a nonprofit. And for folks that may not be familiar with how you all are operating, just give them a little snapshot of what you all do. Yeah, thanks for asking that, because we don't want to be the, the, the best best kept secret in town, you know, and sometimes we are. Um, so we've been around for 35 years. We started out as Mercy Mobile. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started uh, because the hospital that we had been a part of, St. Joseph's Hospital, moved from Cortland Street up to Sandy Springs back mm-hmm. in the mid-70s. And the Sisters of Mercy that started the hospital and Mercy Care and the doctors and nurses felt like they'd left their mission downtown because they really usually were focused on care of the poor. So they created Mercy Care to come back downtown. And we started out just with mobile vans. You still see them t- to this day. We still do you know, mobile care. But we also have uh, 12 uh, distinct clinic sites. And we offer everything from general primary care, HIV care, dental care, vision, uh, vision care, a lot of health education, a lot of screenings. Uh, we do... Um, a lot of outreach. We have a street medicine team that goes out four days a week and actually goes under the bridges, down into the encampments and delivers direct uh, patient care, a lot of outreach and case management. And we also operate two really unique programs. They're recuperative care programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is at the Gateway and one at City of Refuge. And this is for homeless people that are coming out of the hospital, still pretty medically vulnerable. The hospitals don't want to put them back out on the streets so mm-hmm. they can come to our units and they can stay upwards of 30 to 40 days to recuperate. Very familiar with the Sisters of Mercy and their work in St. Louis, my hometown. Um, more than uh, more than 150 years, I believe, uh, the work that they've been doing. Um, how did you protect your staff, uh, Tom, during this all of this as well? Did you have any cases among your staff? 
Uh, yeah, let me first say our staff, uh, we've got about 250, 260 people that work throughout the Mercy Care delivery system. And they're some of the most phenomenal people I've ever worked with in my life. They're so dedicated and many of them have a very strong spiritual focus and, and, and typically come to work here because they really want to give back. And But it's been scary for all of us. And we, we back in um, uh, April, we had to partially shut down some of our clinics, uh, mainly because we wanted to protect our patients and, and uh, we didn't have the proper uh, PPE, protective equipment mm -hmm. to uh, protect our staff. Um, so we started a lot of telehealth. Um, we, we shifted very quickly for both behavioral health and primary care to continue to connect and provide services to our patients through that means, which gave our staff a lot of, 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 of you know, I think um, a feeling of, of safety. Mm -hmm. uh, we reopened in uh, June and, and that was after we really did bring a lot of safety precautions to our clinics and we had enough protective equipment. Um, but we've been working very hard to help our staff stay resilient and really stay connected to the patients and to the work. But to tell you the truth, it's not hard because they're just phenomenal people. And Tom, as of right now, how are you all? You all are still out there. You're still trying to get folks not only just with the testing, but get them vaccinated as well. How are you able to follow up? Because first, I'm imagining many of them will also receiving the two dose vaccine. So is that a challenge for you to follow up with the, some of the folks? Well, Rose, God is good because um, about a month, month and a half ago, we got the Moderna vaccine to start in January. And yeah, it's a real challenge making sure that you follow up and get those folks back 30 days later for their, their, for their booster shot. Um, about a month, month and a half ago, Mercy Care was chosen by the federal government to get direct vaccine from the federal government. And the second shipment was all the Janssen, the J&J &J one, one dose vaccine. And that's what we've been using principally uh, going forward because it does make it a lot easier to get the vaccines in the arms and then to not have to track track the patients back for the second dose. And one time, speaking of tracking, what are your numbers now? What does the data show in terms of how many folks you all have been able to test and then also getting shots in arms? Where do you stand now? Yeah, so we've tested um, through last month about eight, eight, over 8,000 individuals. Um, and we continue to test, but, but thankfully, um, you know, resources are, are, are tough to come by, staff resources to do the testing and to do the vaccination. So we shifted away from the mass uh, testing um, uh, efforts and shifted that re those resources to the vaccine. But we were lucky enough to get free uh, home test kits. And we got 2,000 of them a couple of weeks ago, and we're actually getting them out to the shelters and to the homeless service providers so that they can continue to test the individuals that are coming to them for services. As far as a vaccine, We've pushed out over um, 3,000 doses so far, mm -hmm. and we've, vac we've vaccinated um, over 1,500 are fully vaccinated, and another 800 are waiting for their second dose. You know, Tom, I've asked this question so many times, and I'm always interested in, in leaders and folks who work in the organizations and the nonprofits that are on the front lines of this. What has been the biggest takeaway from you from a public health policy in this nation and what needs to change and what's not working uh, that you've learned throughout all of this? through your lens? Well, I, you know, I think the challenge of all this for, for many healthcare providers is that, you know, we weren't really equipped to respond uh, in many ways. You know, we talk about the protective equipment. We talk about even the logistics of how do you host a mass testing event? How do you host a mass vaccine event? And so, you know, we found ourselves, you know, pretty much daily pivoting to respond to something different that we were facing that we hadn't expected. So I think there are a lot of lessons learned. And, and I think that we're now better equipped to be able to respond to these kinds of public health uh, emergencies. But I think the thing that I take away the most is how much um, barriers were broken down and how much we across Atlanta, healthcare institutions and, and uh, all of the nonprofits really came together. And then of course, with the support of a lot of foundations, mm -hmm. the philanthropic community really stood up. I mean, we got so many donations and so much support from the philanthropic community that, that really did help us you know, respond to this in an effective way. So it's, it's like everything else, Rose, you have a crisis, what happens? We come together. And, and I think we did a phenomenal job with that. And you know, Tom, people may think I, I shouldn't say this, but I think I can because I've been covering this for over a year. Yes, the philanthropic community came together. I have been giving praise to the nonprofit organizations, the public-private partnerships from federal, state, lo local, what have you. 
came together during this this crisis. But what does that say to you about then what you all can do to really, really make an impact? And if you don't, if people aren't comfortable with saying we can end homelessness, but others say we should, what does it say then about what you all can do moving forward? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that because the 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 entity that I have not um, really praised is Partners for Home and Catherine Marchman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the support of the city, they have created the, they have created a lot of opportunities out of this. You know, I, I mentioned the non congregate hotel. Um, they had upwards of 700 people staying at that hotel, chronically homeless individuals, most of which who have been homeless for five, 10, 15, 20 years. They have created a rapid rehousing program uh, around those individuals and have housed already 600 uh, people from that that hotel. So it was a rallying call. We thought, okay, we've got an opportunity here. How do we get more funding? How do we, in fact, use that funding to address homelessness in general? Tom Andrews, the CEO of St. Joseph's Health System, which consists of Mercy Care, Mercy Care Foundation and Mercy Care Rome. Tom, thanks for all that you and your organizations have been doing to help the regions unsheltered with the vaccine and testing. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Back at you. Thanks. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. You know, I'm Rose Scott. The list of corporate leaders speaking out against Georgia's new voting law, well, it continues to grow. Apple CEO Tim Cook said a law, quote, The right to vote is fundamental in a democracy. American history is a story of expanding the right to vote to all citizens. And black people in particular have had to march, struggle and even give their lives for more than a century to defend their right. Close quote. Here in Georgia, we know that Coca-Cola, Delta Airline leaders have now been vocal. Now, speaking to the cable network CNBC yesterday, Governor Brian Kemp defended the law. Now, here's Kemp responding to a question regarding those Atlanta-based corporations speaking out against the law. Well, I'm glad to talk about Delta because we've been working with their legislative team and the Coca-Cola legislative team the whole time. Um, Specifically for Delta, they did not express any reservations about the final products of this bill. It wasn't until a couple of days after we signed it, that after the political pressure that Ed Bastian is now putting out a statement that quite honestly, nothing he said yet is pointing to suspic- uh, any specific points in the bill that are causing suppression or any of those things because it doesn't exist. And, um, you know, I understand that they have public companies and they have boards that are pressuring them, but that still doesn't change the truth and the fact that this bill expands voting access, especially on the weekends in Georgia. It uses a voter ID, which is free for absentee ballot with mail that will speed up the process. It requires county elections officials to continuously tabulate to get every vote counted. And uh, it's a secure, accessible, fair way to do it. Uh, As Governor Kemp giving his explanation. Now, at this hour, faith leaders, civil rights and voting rights advocates were actually gathering outside the world of Coca-Cola in downtown Atlanta to announce a boycott of national corporations for, quote, their failure to speak out against Senate Bill 202, which was passed and then signed by Governor Kemp. Now, earlier this week, the Urban League of Greater Atlanta, on behalf with other institutions, issued a letter to Governor Kemp and state Republican leaders. We're going to talk more about that now because joining me now is Nancy Flake Johnson. Of course, she is she heads the Urban League of Greater Atlanta here in our region. And Nancy Flake Johnson, good to speak with you again. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Good to speak with you, Rose. Wow, there's a lot to get to. We'll, we'll try to get through it. Let's begin with Governor Kemp holding fast that this law is not restrictive, but expansive. We wanted to be fair. We wanted to, to play his entire clip there from CNBC. Your reaction, your response. Well, my reaction is that um, what the governor did not talk about, uh, which I feel personally is the most uh, egregious about this bill, is that it strips the elected secretary of state of very important powers. Um, And it also gives the legislature 
the uh, opportunity, the actually the, the, the power through this law to take over any voting jurisdiction in the entire state if they deem anything they do to be out of favor with what they want to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my biggest fear, what I think about is what would have happened if this law was in effect last November after the presidential election, when we know for certain, because we probably all heard it, that the then president of the United States called the very governor and, and the secretary of state and basically said, find 11,000 plus votes mm-hmm. so this thing can go our way. Isn't it curious that immediately upon uh, the outcome of those elections, which the secretary of state did his job, he stood his ground and really was threatened. Uh, He's been punished. Uh, And so here we are where the governor doesn't mention those provisions. So there's, again, this uh, misperception. I mean, there's a, a, a deception going on. So let's tell the whole story. Let's talk about then strategy and response. Because in the letter that you, you all put your your signature to with so many other organizations, I'm going to quote you all. Today we call on businesses, citizens, major event planners, and individuals across the nation who champion democracy and inclusion to exercise their right to think carefully about where to make economic investments, close quote. One would argue, Ms. Johnson, if you all do that, you are also impacting a lot of people who look like you, who look like me, um, and their livelihoods and their quality of life. There's another argument that some says, look, in the past, we know that economic boycotts hit folks in a wallet, corporations in a wallet. You know, you could point, start with the Montgomery bus boycott. So yeah, let's talk about the Montgomery bus boycott. But you know, That's this is a great t- example, right? But this is 2021, so. Is there a compromise in between there? What, what do you feel works best? Well, I, I, I think what would work best is for everyone to, prior to this law passing, would have been the time that we've reached out. Many of our colleagues have reached out. There were campaigns pre-vote that gave um, our corporate leaders, our Uh, anyone, really. This is every citizen's responsibility to care, uh, to speak up, speak out, do your part, whatever you feel is best for you. Uh, And so uh, I would say none of us want to hurt our communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, here's the thing. These things were railroaded through. The only thing that has brought about open Uh, conversation and pushback on the bills has been an economic response. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at at the end of the day, uh, we're, we're in a situation in this state where we have a, almost a super majority in our state legislature, which means, uh, and, and there, there's very little compromise going on. There's a lot of strategy you know, up front, I believe the strategy was, this is me talking now, this mm-hmm. is Nancy, mm-hmm. saying um, in the beginning, I think they the strategy was put everything and the kitchen sink in this bill, go over the top, take away Sunday voting, take away early voting, take away automatic, you know, registrations, take away, take away, take away. And then in the process, you give some of that back so it looks like you're really you're giving something back to what really didn't need to move in the first place. Um, and so uh, it's a game. You know, it's a mind game. And that's what politics can boil down to sometimes. And so at the end of the day here, uh, we should, there's, let's go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. The governor and the legislators' contention is that these sweeping changes were needed because there was substantial fraud in the election. Now, lawsuits were filed, recounts multiple times, hand counts, machine counts, 
their own party leader of the Secretary, Secretary of State himself stood by these as being the, that this election was had the lowest error rate mm -hmm. in history. Highest turnout, lowest error rate. And yet there's this sweeping dramatic response post openly knowing that their party's president at the time called and asked them sure. to commit a felony. And those are all, those are all, those are all facts in a sense. Uh, then President Trump did make calls and tried to pressure Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger into finding votes. But as we stand right now, and someone saying, Nancy Flake Johnson, as president and CEO at the Urban League of Greater Atlanta, you of all people know the importance of economic stability as it relates to black and brown communities. Yes. We're in the middle of a pandemic on top. I Absolutely. Get it. And, and, so and we're also in a state that has the lowest minimum wage in the entire country, mm -hmm. though we're number one for business. We're practically number one for poverty. We incarcerate more people than almost every other state. The conditions aren't that great to begin with. And so where, where we are right now is fundamentally, if, if we have to use a variety of strategies mm -hmm. that will work to ensure that black people, all people have access to the ballot and not only the access, but the confidence that when my ballot is cast, it will count. And all I ask you is, if these laws were in place, I wish we had a crystal ball to know where we would be today if these laws were in place in November. Do you think would, that Delta and Coca-Cola were a little late in being very clear and adamant about their stance, as some people say they were a little kind of vague? Oh, the yeah, Some say that. I'm not saying uh, that. Other folks say that. Well, well it, all you have to do, look at the letters that were issued pre-vote by all the critical business leadership organizations, the Georgia Chamber, the Metro Atlanta Chamber, the, um, the various heads of corporations who did speak up. They all said they were for fair elections. They were not for voter suppression. Get that. But Clearly, there were they had no influence or or did not put pressure, because things went through as they went through. Mm -hmm. So, yep, it's late, and and but where this this is where we are right now. So I think it's what what I think is needs to happen uh, for this country. This is we're talking democracy at on the line. Forty three states introduced laws to make it more difficult. What if all of them have laws that allow uh, one party over another to flip elections at will? Uh, where would where will black people be in particular? And where will this country be? How optimistic are you? Because we know there have been lawsuits that have been filed that the courts might intervene, strike that, call this law unconstitutional based on several challenges. How optimistic are you that that is going to be key and that's the only way you know, for you all to to get this law? Well, it's not the it's not, not the only the, way, but yeah, I am cautiously, uh, prayerfully. I don't even know if I'd call it optimistic, but I'm prayerful mm -hmm. that justice would prevail. But again, we have to look at the fact that uh, 230 federal judges were appointed over the last four years. Many of them were approved by the American Bar Association as qualified. Many of them are loyal to a party. And so this party. So am I, uh, am I totally optimistic? No. Uh, do I have to have faith in the system and push the envelope and go through the process and hang with it? Same thing we're going to go through with we're in the midst of with the George Floyd trial. Mm -hmm. Am I optimistic? I've been optimistic. I don't know if I call it optimistic, but I've been prayerful through many trials now where justice hasn't prevailed. There's a history here, mm -hmm. but 
we must push forward and we must unify. Because here, here's the thing. I think, I hope that Mr. Bastion and the other CEOs that are beginning to speak up, that they're not only doing it because of a fear of a boycott. You know, at the end of the day, this is the right thing for America. And to your point, none of us want that the impacts to be negative on either side of this equation with respect to anything a boycott would produce. But we have to use every single tool available to get people at the table who talk to one another and, and lay this, the cards out. Yeah. Many people, business leaders have told me that when they talk about the bill, they say, well, what's really bad about the bill, Nancy? Um, do you have a problem with IDs? Well, you know, I would prefer that we had a more open process for people to access voting. But guess what? If 200,000 Black people have to have IDs, that we'll, we'll make sure they get IDs. Finally, you know? And if we have to uh, stand 151 feet from the pole so people can have water, if the lines are long and it's a hot day or we're in the middle of a pandemic still, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. But we cannot undo the power they've put in place to take over. Finally, you got about a minute here. President Joe Biden oh. has said he supports Major League Baseball moving the All-Star game out of Georgia. There were reports earlier that League officials are discussing it. They have not come out and said that, but those are some of the reports, CNBC reporting that. Do you think Major League Baseball should move the All-Star game out of Georgia this year because of this law? If if there are no changes that are going to be made, do you support that? If no changes are going to be made, I think every sector... We're asking to ask yourself the question, by continuing business as usual, what message is that sending? And where will Black people be in the longer run? You know, we don't want anybody to suffer with the Urban League, right? We don't want that. Uh, but we, we got to preserve these fundamental rights for our people to have a chance, period. Nancy Flake Johnson, President and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Obviously, it's a topic that so many of us are going to stay on top of. We'll, have you, we'll have you back. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate you so much. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Of course, if you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7, as well as in our podcast. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.